He was a follower of Aleister Crowley, who became head of the Ordo Templi Orientis. He worked with L. Ron Hubbard, and the two of them attempted to create a moon child. He was also a brilliant and handsome, self-educated rocket engineer who was instrumental in starting the United States space program. His name was Jack Parsons, and I have his story on the 150th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I hope wherever you are, the weather is as nice as it is here in Chicagoland. I've got a very interesting story to tell, but it's a long story. So long that I considered making it a two-part episode, but I didn't. It's just one fairly lengthy episode, so I'm going to get right into it. It's the story of a man who had two sides to his life, sides that almost seem opposites, one of science and fact, the other an occult world filled with magic, sex, and drugs. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Well, let me tell you about Jack Parsons. Uh, There's a great number of stories about him. There's a great aura uh, of events and people and places and things that he did. And one of the things that uh, I'm fascinated with is the, the man comes on the scene uh, late 1930s, early 1940s in Southern California at a place uh, that was going to be renowned for its development of rockets that would lead on into the later 20th century. The craters of the moon have been used as a tribute to those who have contributed to science in some special way. People who have had craters named after them are, among others, Buzz Aldrin, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein... Galileo Galilei, Edwin Hubble, Isaac Newton, and H.G. Wells. Over on the far side of the moon, the part that's often called the dark side, there's a crater named after a man named Jack Parsons. Not too many people have heard of Jack Parsons, which is odd when you think that he helped start the United States Space Program and was one of the original founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory was created in 1936 by a small group of California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, graduate students who were called the Suicide Squad. The group began making solid-fuel rockets for the Army during World War II, and by the 1950s they had teamed up with Werner von Braun and his team to send the United States of America's first artificial satellite, Explorer 1, into space. Jack Parsons, a man who had never received a college degree, was a rocket engineer, rocket propulsion researcher, and chemist. He made major contributions to rocket development. 
Some of his inventions were later used in the space shuttle program and the Minuteman missiles. He was one of the founding fathers of spaceflight. Perhaps the reason why he is not as well known as perhaps he should be, some say he has been written out of NASA's history, and maybe why his crater is located on the far side of the moon was that there was another side to this man. He was among the most important figures in the United States space program, but he was also into some strange occult practices. And he died at a very young age, under very questionable circumstances. But let's go back to the beginning. He was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons on the second day of October 1914 in Los Angeles, California, to the wealthy Ruth and Marvel Parsons. His father went by the name Tad or Teddy, rather than his strange birth name, and for the young Marvel, he was called Jack. His parents' marriage quickly dissolved when Jack's mother found out that his father frequented prostitutes. It was a nasty end to two and a half years of marriage. And in the end, the elder Marvel was forbidden to see Jack. He eventually joined the army and started a new family. The young Jack would never get to know his father. Soon Ruth's wealthy parents, who were now retired, moved in with her and their grandson. Jack would be surrounded by domestic servants in their new house on Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena, an area known as Millionaire Mile. He grew up a spoiled child, some say a mother's boy, with very few friends and spent much of his time reading. He devoured anything to do with King Arthur, Arabian Nights, and Greek and Norse mythology. A friend later recalled, It was a dream of his as a child to belong to a group of men who were doing something noble and wonderful, and he also wanted to go to the moon. Another favorite of his was pulp magazines like Amazing Stories, which featured many stories that seemed to predict the future of space travel. He did very poorly in high school and was bullied for his upper-class status and perceived effeminacy. Yet even through his awkwardness, he was able to form a very strong friendship with another boy named Edward Foreman. Ed Foreman was from a poor working-class family and was into, like Parsons, fiction and rocketry. Ed also protected Jack from the bullies. The two began experimenting with fireworks made with homemade gunpowder, and eventually that turned into little homemade rockets. Neighbors would report that Parsons' backyard was full of scorched craters. One of Parsons' early discoveries was to use glue as a binding agent to increase the rocket's fuel stability. This is even more amazing when you think that, at this time, rocketry wasn't even a science. It was considered more of a silly fantasy, so Jack and Foreman had to teach themselves everything they needed to know. It was also about this time that Jack began to take an interest in the occult. He would perform rituals in his bedroom to invoke the devil. He stopped, however, after thinking that he may have actually succeeded. His other interests were fencing and archery. Even though he was a very bright boy, he was a very poor student. So much so that his mother eventually sent him to a private boarding school in San Diego, the Brown Military Academy for Boys. He was expelled for blowing up the toilets. In 1932, Parsons began working for a chemical and munitions manufacturing company, the Hercules Powder Company, where he learned more about explosives and their potential use in rocket propulsion. When he graduated from high school in 1933, he and his friend Foreman began studying at Pasadena's Junior College. 
For a while, he hoped to get a degree in chemistry at Stanford University, but after the Depression took most of the family's money, the high tuition fees became unaffordable, and he returned to Pasadena. Parsons met 22-year-old Helen Northrup at a local church dance. The two were married in April 1935. At this time, Jack was working for the explosives manufacturer Halifax Powder Company. For extra money, he manufactured nitroglycerin in the couple's home, constructing a home laboratory on their front porch. Most of his money, however, went to the Galset Rocket Research Group. The Galset Rocket Research Group began when Parsons and Foreman met Ph. student Frank Molina, a mathematician and mechanical engineer who shared an interest in rocketry. Molina wrote in 1968 that the self-educated Parsons lacked the discipline of formal higher education, but had an uninhibited and fruitful imagination. The three were looking for funding to create and shoot rockets into space when legendary aerodynamicist Theodor von Karman, who was working at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories, took interest. Von Karman was one of the smartest people in the world at the time, and he agreed to take on the directorship of the group, which they called the Galsey Rocket Research Group. After a few mishaps on the campus of Caltech, including many dangerous explosions that, by some miracle, didn't hurt anyone, the group moved out into the desert where their explosive experiments wouldn't damage buildings or innocent people. Because of these explosions, which sometimes happened practically in their faces, they were nicknamed the Suicide Squad. The group would often spend their nights at Parsons' house, Helen making sandwiches as they drank alcohol and discussed their thoughts and ideas. Eventually, Frank Molina, Edward S. Foreman, Jack Parsons, Apollo M.O. Smith, and Rudolf Schlott were out in the desert creating the first rocket engines. They were later joined by G.N. Susan and Weld Arnold. Now, as much as I would like to talk about the accomplishments of this group, like the invention of Jado rockets and such, as well as stories about the other members of the team, today's story is about the life of Jack Parsons, and it's this point in the story where things get strange. Alistair Crowley was the founder of the Church of Thelema. I'm sure you've heard of Crowley. He was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. He referred to himself as the Great Beast 666 and was called by the English media the wickedest man in the world. For more information on Crowley, listen to Coffee with Jeff episodes 104, 105, and 106. Thelema was a spiritual philosophy, whom some call a religious movement, based on Crowley's Book of the Law and the Book of Thelema. Their slogan is, Do what thy wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Crowley was also involved in something called sex magic. And magic is spelled M-A-G-I-C-K. Jack and Helen had befriended brother and sister John and Francis Baxter, and in January 1939, they took Jack to the Church of Thelema on Winona Boulevard in Hollywood, where he witnessed the performance of a Gnostic Mass. Jack had already been aware of Crowley after reading several of his books. He embraced the church almost immediately and quickly joined Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO for short. He would slowly rise in the ranks of the OTO while at the same time doing his rocket experiments with the group in the desert. He seemed to pursue both his scientific interests and his new religious beliefs with equal intensity. 
Things were going great for the Galset Rocket Research Group. They had developed a liquid jet fuel that remained stable under intense circumstances and sold 60 jet engines fueled by their new liquid jet fuel to the United States Air Corps when the U.S. entered World War II. For this, Parsons, Foreman, Molina, Von Karman, and Sommerfeld formed the Aerojet Engineering Corporation, each investing about $250. At the same time, Jack continued to get deeper and deeper into his occult interests. The Parsons befriended English occultist and ceremonial magician Wilford Talbot Smith, who was the current leader of the OTO. Jack bought a large house on South Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena, and it became a home for the Thelmanites who contributed $100 a month for rent. He divided the huge mansion up into 19 apartments, and Parsons put an ad in the paper that specified that only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, and other exotic types need apply for rooms. Any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. The home became the new Agape Lodge, the church for the OTO. It had its own livestock for meat as well as blood rituals, and Parsons converted the garage and laundry room into a chemical laboratory. There was a large portrait of Crowley hung in the stairwell, and it was decorated with coffins and candles. Actors, actresses, poets, writers, including science fiction writer Robert A. Heinlein, often visited the home. There were many bizarre stories about what went on in the mansion. Robes and pointy hats were worn by the church leaders, and there were bizarre rituals and ceremonies, with drug use to expand consciousness, open sex, and who knows what else. By now, Jack was giving all the money he earned to the OTO and was constantly trying to recruit new members. One of the new recruits was his old friend, Ed Foreman. The Agape Lodge soon came under investigation by both the Pasadena Police Department and the FBI. Neighbors complained about this black magic cult. One report was of a 16-year-old boy who was said to have been raped by lodge members and another of a naked pregnant woman jumping through or over a fire. Parsons explained to the authorities that the lodge was simply an organization dedicated to religious and philosophical speculation. Never was there any evidence of illegal activity found. But inside the lodge, Parsons now habitually used cocaine, amphetamines, peyote, mescaline, and opiates along with his usual alcohol and marijuana. He was also involved in sexual relations with multiple women. Now I'm not an expert on Thelema or the OTO and I don't pretend to be, but from what I understand, there is a very sexually permissive attitude, whether it be free love, religious expression, part of sex magic, or whatever. So in June 1941, when Helen was away, Parsons began a sexual relationship with Helen's 17-year-old sister, Sarah. Parsons said he found her more sexually attractive than her older sister, and by the time Helen returned, Sarah was calling herself Jack's wife. Helen then took up with Wilfred Talbot Smith, and the two would have a relationship that would last for the rest of Smith's life. The four of them began living together in the large home that Jack had bought. Jack, like his mentor Aleister Crowley, began writing poetry. One of his most popular poems went like this. I hide Don Quixote, live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and brain. 
There's more to it. You can find it on the internet if you want to read the whole thing. Yes, sex drugs were a big part of what was going on in there. Often Jack arrived at Aerojet hungover and sleep-deprived. Von Karman once described him as a delightful screwball, but now he began to get angry. Though later, Von Karman would say that he knew nothing about Parsons' occult lifestyle. Alistair Crowley was highly critical of Smith's leadership of the Lodge, and eventually he and his North American deputy, Carl Germer, had him step aside and Parsons was appointed head of the OTO. Through all this, Parsons was still working for Aerojet, but then when the U.S. became aware of Nazi Germany developing U-2 rockets, they came to Aerojet with a renewed interest in rocketry. The group was given a $3 million grant to develop rocket-based weapons and was given a new name, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. When the Navy ordered 20,000 JATO rocket engines, which Parsons was very involved in developing, the JPLs needed more money. They agreed to sell 51% of their stock to the General Tire and Rubber Company to cope with the increased demand. One of the conditions of sale, however, were that both Parsons and Foreman be removed from the company. This might have had something to do with their occult activities, but I'm not really sure. It turned out it was all right with Parsons, as he really wanted to do work like he had done in the past, in his backyard, instinctively, without regard for safety. He sold his stock in the company, and depending who you listened to, it was between $11,000 and $50,000. Not bad for a $250 investment. And he put that into the OTO. About this time, a new member moved into the lodge who quickly became a close friend of Parsons and a partner or assistant in his magic. He was an ex-U.S. naval officer and science fiction writer. His name was L. Ron Hubbard, the man who would go on to create Scientology. Parsons said he was the most thelmetic person he had ever met and was in complete accord with their principles. It didn't take long for Sarah, who had an open sexual relationship with Jack, to begin to fall for Hubbard. Jack had already lost Helen to Smith and now was losing Sarah to the new guy. I have read that he wasn't bothered too much by this, and I've also read that he was very jealous, so my guess is that it's somewhere in between. Parsons, meanwhile, began moving into black magic. He performed strange rituals and reported paranormal events including poltergeist activities, sights of orbs and ghostly apparitions, and disembodied voices. Some have suggested that Sarah and L. Rod Hubbard were behind these. The most famous of these was his attempt to magically fertilize a magical child through immaculate conception. This was inspired by Crowley's 1917 novel Moonchild. It involved a goddess named Babylon, also known as the Scarlet Woman. Parsons believed that it was possible to summon the elemental spirit of Babylon into human form with the use of sex magic. So in 1946, Parsons began an 11-day sex magic ritual with the aid of Hubbard, known as the Babylon Working. Now this might be apocryphal, but I have read that part of this involves masturbating into a magical tablet, believing that somewhere on Earth, a woman would give birth to a baby, an incarnation of the archetypal divine feminine called Babylon, who was mentioned in Crowley's Book of the Law. 
Now, I didn't look into this all that much, and I would suspect that I could do a whole episode just on this ritual. But one might ask, what did Crowley think of this? In a letter to a friend, Crowley wrote, Apparently, Parsons or Hubbard or somebody is producing a moon child. I get fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these louts. Soon after it was complete, Parsons met an unemployed illustrator, poet, actress, and occultist, Majori Cameron. This red-haired, blue-eyed woman visited his home, and the two began a relationship. Parsons declared that her arrival was proof that his ritual was a success. Now, it has been said that Crowley never trusted Hubbard, calling him a con artist, and warned Parsons of this. Jack found out this the hard way when he, Hubbard, and Sarah began a business venture they called Allied Enterprises. The idea was to buy three yachts in Miami, sail them through the Panama Canal to the West Coast, and sell them for a profit. Parsons invested his life savings of $20,000 into the venture. Apparently, Hubbard and Sarah took off with the money and left Parsons with nothing. Through the courts, the partnership was dissolved, and Parsons attempted to get his money back. He did get some, but only a small portion of what he lost. Allegedly, he was discouraged from taking further legal action by Sarah, who threatened to report him for statutory rape since their sexual relationship took place when she was under California's age of consent of 18. Not too long after this, Crowley removed Parsons as head of the OTO, or he resigned, depending on who you believe. Parsons and Majori soon married. They sold the house and moved into the former coach house on the Orange Grove Avenue property. After leaving Aerojet, Parsons for a time worked for one of the powder companies he had worked for previously, and then North American Aviation as a rocket motor designer, while at the same time instructing Majori in occultism. After that, he worked for Howard Hughes's Hughes Aircraft Company in Culver City. While working there, he heard about a new state of Israel and that they wanted to start an Israeli rocket program. A group called the American Tecton Society was looking for people to go to Israel, and they looked at him to produce technical reports. When Parsons was getting ready to go, he took some of his own work, things he had been doing for the Hughes Company, and asked a Hughes secretary to use them to type up a portfolio of technical documents. She was shocked as this was classified material and reported him to the FBI. He was accused of espionage and attempted theft of classified company documents. While it was eventually determined that Parsons didn't intend or even give any classified material to a foreign government and was set free, he was immediately fired from the Hughes Aircraft Company. By this time, his mental state was in question as he began calling himself the Antichrist. To make ends meet, he worked for an explosives company and then formed his own company, the Parsons Chemical Manufacturing Company, which was based in North Hollywood and created pyrotechnics and explosives such as fog effects and imitation gunshot wounds for the film industry. At home, he still worked with dangerous chemicals and such, and had parties attended largely by bohemians and members of the Beat Generation, along with his old friends Foreman and Melina. He also collaborated with his wife on a collection of poems in which she illustrated called Songs for the Witch Woman. 
that wouldn't be published till 2014. While on a vacation to Mexico, Parsons saw a job opportunity in establishing an explosives factory for the Mexican government. He hoped that this might lead to a move to Israel without involving the United States, as he thought that the FBI had been spying on him. It was on the 17th of June, 1952, a day before they were set to leave. The boxes were all packed, and he was working on a rush order for explosives in his home laboratory. Now, if one thing could be said of Jack Parsons, it was that he knew explosives and he knew how to handle them. The story goes that a lodger staying at his home said to him, Whatever you do, Jack, don't blow us up. And Jack just sort of smiled and said, Don't worry. Moments later, an explosion rocked the house, followed by another. When other tenants in the house rushed to the scene, they found Jack under a heavy sink, his right forearm gone, legs broken, and the right side of his face ripped apart. Yet he was still alive and he was rushed to the hospital where he was declared dead 37 minutes after the explosion. To add a little more strangeness to the story, Parsons' mother Ruth, after hearing of her son's death, immediately took a fatal overdose of barbiturates and she died. Majority Cameron, who had been out shopping, learned of his death from the reporters when she returned. There's been a lot said of his death, and a lot have tried to make it out to be some sort of mystery or conspiracy. Investigators concluded he had been mixing fulminate of mercury in a coffee can when he dropped it on the floor, causing the initial explosion. When this came in contact with other chemicals in the room, it caused the second explosion. Some doubt the story because they know that he was neat and had cautious habits, but it only takes one moment of carelessness and the fact that a morphine-filled syringe found at the scene suggested that he might not have been in his right mind. But who knows? There are those who believe it was a suicide. Others think that he was assassinated by Howard Hughes. Some say he was murdered by the police or by anti-Zionists opposed to his planned work in Israel. Marvel Whiteside Jack Parsons, a handsome rocket scientist and Thelmanite occultist, died at the age of 37 by an accidental explosion on the 17th of June, 1952. A private prayer service was held for Parsons at a funeral home where his body was cremated. Cameron scattered his ashes in the Mojave Desert before burning most of his possessions. She later tried to perform astral projections to communicate with him. We don't know if that was successful. The OTO held a memorial service with attendees including Helen and Sarah, at which Smith held a Gnostic Mass. Was it an accident? Uh, was it suicide? Uh, was it murder? Was it a strange occult ritual gone wrong? Each world of Parsons, the Parsons inhabited, has its own ending. The occult world has him summoning up a demon. Uh, perhaps you know, his, his rocketry world has him uh, perhaps making an accident from playing so fast and loose with his chemicals. Uh, his Los Angeles world has him being murdered in a kind of uh, uh, a film noir manner. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. A couple things before I go. The story of Jack Parsons could have been a lot longer. In fact, I listened to one show that talked about his life for over an hour and a half. 
and there's a book called Sex and Rockets about his life. What I'm trying to say is there's a lot more to the story than I can tell you here. Each event that I talk about, I could have gone on and on with a lot more detail. And as always, this story is based on what I could find through searching the internet. I don't guarantee it's 100% accurate. But I hope I'm giving you, well, a taste of who Jack Parsons was. One thing I found while I was searching the internet for Jack Parsons is that you'll find many sites or YouTube channels who say the history of NASA is connected to the occult. Yes, there are many who believe the United States Space Program is really an occult organization and use Jack Parsons as an example. It's actually sort of scary. The comments that I've read are from people who believe that not only have human beings never been to the moon, but we've never been to space. But we're all entitled to our opinions, right? And before I leave, I want to throw a special shout out to a couple listeners. I don't know if I mentioned Russell last week, who sent me some interesting emails about counterfeiting. Thanks, Russell. And recently, a listener named Sharon emailed me with a very interesting future episode idea. Thank you, Sharon. I found out that every Sunday morning when Sharon's baking, I'm in the kitchen with her. Scary, huh? Thanks, guys, and the rest of you should be like them and send me a message once in a while. One more thing. For the first time in a long time, we had really warm weather here in Illinois, so I had the window open the whole time I was recording this. So if you hear birds, cars, or trains in the background, I apologize. And if my voice got a little scratchy by the end, I also apologize for that. Anyway, I'll make this quick because the show was long. Let's get to the ending credits. This is the part where I beg for your hard-earned money. The Psycon Network could really use your cash to keep going. Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? The new and improved Geek Days just celebrated their 800th show. I've only been on it for a small fraction of that. But if you haven't listened to the show in a while, it's now a weekly show that's, well, it's changed quite a bit. I think you'll like it. You can find this and other exciting Psycon shows over at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome, and you can use any of these places to help me out. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You will always have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling show. Coffee. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.